sponsored by Expressway. With My Expressway, free travel pass holders can reserve their seats online at expressway.ie or at our ticket machines in stations. internationally renowned for its hospitality, its friendliness and natural beauty, plus of course its supernatural activity. Quite right too, as far as spirits are concerned, it's standing or haunting room only. And there is nowhere better to start looking for them than in the ghost-rich capital cities of Dublin and Belfast, both homes to the spirits of the good, the bad sad and mad, and occasionally evil former inhabitants. Many of Dublin's ghosts are located in the old walled city. This one stretched from Bridge Street in the west to Dublin Castle and Essex Street in the east, and from the River Liffey to Ship Street and Back Lane. At its heart lay Christchurch Cathedral, dating from 1030. Alongside were the Dublin Courts, then situated in Cathedral Yard, and which produced their own ghost. One of the 18th century Attorney Generals was John Tolley, first Earl of Norbury. He was nicknamed the Hanging Judge, and for good reason. He ran a close second to the notorious English Hanging Judge Jeffreys. Men were sent to the gallows for apparently trivial crimes and in very poor taste, Norbury occasionally joked during many sentences. He infamously fell asleep during a murder trial, and it was said politely that he had a negligible grasp of the law. In court, he was known to sometimes remove his wig and start telling jokes. He sometimes went too far, such as abusing the patriot Robert Emmett, whom he sentenced to hang. Eventually, Norbury had to rule on a young, impoverished man for the crime of stealing a sheep. Norbury gave him a death sentence. The man's broken-hearted widow later cursed him, saying that his soul should never rest. When he died in 1831, at his funeral procession, there was difficulty in moving the coffin. A voice rang out from the crowd. Give him rope galore, boys. He was never sparing of it in life. Norbury's ghost is still to be seen, dragging chains in the Cabra area or in the shape of a large black dog. In Cathedral Yard, alongside the courts, was a narrow passage which led to the infamous area of hell. It was named for an underground cellar in the passage and attracted ordinary shoppers and also tourists, as one of its most famous aspects was the wooden arch across its entrance, complete with a statue of the devil. Traders did brisk business, selling carved wooden miniature models of the statue. Hell's area increased in size as its scope and popularity grew to extend from Christchurch Yard to Fishamble Street and a maze of narrow alleyways 
such as Smock and Copper Alleys, Copper Hill and Wine Tavern Street. But under the popular interest and view, hell remained dangerous. It was full of thieves, murderers and vagabonds. Attacks were frequent, as were rape and abduction, with little comebacks for affected families. Street names bore witness to the violence throughout the city. In Kilmainham, an alleyway alongside the high walls leads to a stepway called the Forty Steps. In the 1600s, it was known as Murdering Lane and connected Bow Street and St James's. Nearby Cutthroat Lane was clearly even more dangerous as its step name dates to 1488. Hell was notorious for fights, plus violent gangs. The best known included the Liberty Boys from a local weaving guild and the Ormond Boys who were apprentice butchers. They often fought in the streets of Hell and even hung bodies from the archway over its gates. Thieves, vagrants and criminals roamed cheek by jowl with wealthy fun seekers. Several of the pubs of the time remain. Mulligan's in Poolbeg Street has a history starting in 1782 on Thomas Street, but it settled at its current address in 1854. Bottles of brandy still fly off the shelf. Knocking is heard from under the cellar hatch, as is a moving bucket, and a strange figure in the cellar sits on a keg. The Bull and Castle in Christchurch was a favourite in the life of the poet James Mangan. And in death also, apparently a drop in temperature announces his presence. The Lord Edward is just across the road. Lord Edward Fitzgerald is said to have had a room here, and his ghost apparently pops in from time to time. The Brazen Head over the Liffey is Dublin's oldest pub, dating to 1198. Robert Emmett is said to have planned the 1803 revolution here, and ironically, both he and his hangman were customers. And he still haunts it. It has also been claimed that tunnels ran from Leonard's in Dame Street, now Brogan's pub, to Dublin Castle. However, the real action, in all senses of the word, was in the many brothels found in the alleyways. Darky Kelly, a famed beauty, ruled as a madam at Maiden Tower in Copper Alley. She was a good businesswoman, but Darky was a very bad judge of men. Legend has it that she claimed pregnancy by Dublin's sheriff, Simon Luttrell, first Earl of Carhampton. He was dubbed King of Hell and a boozer, seducer and all-round bad boy. She is said to have claimed financial support for her future child. He counterclaimed that she had killed their baby in a satanic ritual, that she was a witch and had bewitched him. However, sometime later it emerged that Darkey had been implicated in the disappearance of a city shoemaker, John Dowling, in 1760. 
the authorities searched her brothel and found five corpses in the vaults. Had she killed them? A further story emerged. The darkie claimed pregnancy because she could not be hanged. She could not be hanged while in that state. However, in time, she was obviously found not to be so. Hence, in January 1761, Darkey was hanged in what is now Bagot Street until nearly dead and then cut down to be burned alive at the stake in St Stephen's Green as a witch. She was thus denied burial in consecrated ground. So, is Darkey the Green Lady? who still haunts the 39 steps of the one remaining city gate, from St Alden's churchyard down to Cook Street? Or can she be found wandering in the churchyard, floating in a green mist? Christchurch Cathedral has a large crypt with extensive tunnels. In the 16th and 17th century, it was used as a market and business meeting place. There was even a pub there, and complaints at the time said that it resembled a tippling house, offering beer, spirits and tobacco. It also is a ghost story that you won't forget in a hurry. In 1822, a young soldier, possibly a Lieutenant Blacker of the 78th Regiment of Foot, was attending the burial of his commanding officer, Sir Samuel Okmuti. When the event had finished in the crypt, the soldier, intrigued, wandered about exploring. But he took a wrong turn in the pitch dark to find himself locked into a tunnel with enthusiastic and hungry sewer rats. He was missing from duty for two days, but armies searched for their men, and his skeleton was found days later, picked to the bone, his hand grasping a sword, clearly trying to defend himself, and surrounded by pieces of some 250 rats. This happened two centuries ago. Could it happen today? Curiosity, spur of the moment exploration, dislocation in pitch darkness, a stuck door, plus no mobile signal underground. Maybe it's a combination of history and a cautionary tale. Now, you may be thinking, are there no inspirational stories from those days and times? Well, there is one, and no surprises, it is a very shaggy dog story. Captain John McNeil Boyd was born in Northern Ireland and had a distinguished career in the Royal Navy before he took charge of the Irish Coast Guard vessel HMS Ajax. It was based at Kingstown, now of course Dunleary. In 1861, a violent storm hit Ireland's east coast on this 8th of February. The sea was then, of course, the main transport highway, and many ships were soon in trouble. Many were wrecked inside the harbour as well. In Dublin Bay, 14 more went down, and between Hoth and Wicklow Heads, 15. Captain Boyd ordered that he and 
Some five crew members, they lashed together with ropes and rowed over the steps of the pier to aid some of the ships. Waves were now coming over the top of the pier. A very large one engulfed all of the men. However, their limited efforts saved lives on one ship, the Industry. But six lives from the Ajax were lost, along with many others that day, including Captain Boyd. His much-loved Newfoundland dog was with the search party for the body of his master. The captain's body wasn't found until February the 25th. And on Friday the 29th, his coffin was taken to Dublin and a gun carriage cortege. This was one of the biggest and most prestigious funeral processions that the city has ever seen. Huge crowds gathered, and his dog accompanied the captain's coffin. His grave is inside the bounds of St. Patrick's Cathedral in the little graveyard, and a commemorative statue of him stands inside. His dog, heartbroken, never left his master's side, even in death. He refused to eat from anyone's hand and simply died of hunger and grief. And his ghost still is seen in the churchyard or curled up at the foot of the statue. Just up the river from the old city lies the Museum of Modern Art at Kilmainham. It is sited in the old Royal Hospital. Anyone who has seen the Chelsea pensioners in London and their home at the Royal Hospital there will understand that the Royal Hospital Kilmainham was simply another retirement home for old soldiers, and 600 lived there. The site is ancient, dating from the 1170s, and founded by the Knights Hospitallers. Henry VIII took control of it in the 1500s, and in 1684, the Royal Hospital and its graveyard of some 3.7 acres became part of Dublin history. It is remarkable in that after centuries of fighting, people with opposing political and religious views on differing sides in battles with differing national and financial backgrounds now lie in one space in peace, even if in separate sections. But what the area is best known for is Bully's Acre, a wordplay on the word bailiff. Hundreds of thousands of people are buried here. This was a free cemetery and partly a pauper's graveyard and a thoroughly haunted one. Voices have been heard in the dark of night. But these hauntings may not have anything to do with religious or political matters because this is a haunt of body snatchers, of grave robbers and resurrection men. In the 18th century, both medicine and surgery made great advances. However, they lacked the lifelike plastic rubber models, upon which today's students, especially surgeons, can practice. The great schools were at London, Edinburgh and Dublin. Trinity College was renowned, and still has its original anatomy theatre. But students needed bodies upon which to practice dissection, and the only ones which could legally be used were of convicted murderers. 
enter the body snatchers, men who are happy to prowl graveyards at night and dig up recently buried corpses. Edinburgh was notorious for this, thanks in part to two Irishmen, Burke and Hare, who were super efficient at the time. Back then, relatives often mounted protection at the gravesides of loved ones for a few days to protect them in death. But body snatchers just needed a sack and hook. In those days, burials were not six foot under. Also, with no refrigeration, reburial had to be fast. So, the sack them up, guys, for work found that work was brisk, as was trade, and Bully's Acre was a valued, valued spot, supplying both Trinity College and the Royal College of Surgeons. In the 1990s, Trinity's Barclay Library was being extended, and excavations uncovered skeletons, with marks suggesting that medical students had worked on them. The process wasn't just about corpses either. Revolting as it may sound to us, it also included the removal, the removal of valuable and desired teeth. This continued until the Anatomy Act of 1832, which allowed unclaimed bodies from workhouses to be used for medical practice. It is possible that the ghosts of these victims haunt Trinity College, but there is another established ghost of some long standing who met another sad end. In the 1740s, Trinity was smaller than the campus we know today. Rubrics were the boundary for some time. However, one thing has not changed over the centuries the hijinks and pranks of students. Trinity professor and fellow Edward Ford lived at number 25, the Rubrics. Called an obstinate and ill-judging man by his contemporaries, he was woken up one day by fun-loving students once too often. They were throwing stones at his window whilst taunting him. He got out his gun and fired into the jeering crowd. No one was injured, but the students were enraged. They procured a gun and illegally fired a shot through his window, killing the professor. However, he showed great generosity in the hours before his death, saying that he did not know who had pulled the trigger and, may God forgive them, I do. His ghost in breeches, gown and wig is often seen in the area. Travelling with Expressway and your free travel pass is made easier with a reserved seat. When booking journeys at expressway.ie, make sure to select seat-only reservation free travel scheme and pay just two euro per trip to guarantee your seat. Bookings can also be made from ticket machines in stations and priority boarding will be given to those who book in advance. Travel without a booking is still more than welcome, if you prefer, provided we have space on board. Take it easy with your free travel pass and expressway.ie. Think you're not smart enough to own a smartphone? Well, think again and think Doro. 
Doro phones are designed specially with the older person in mind. They're easy to use with louder sound and larger text. Plus numerous state-of-the-art features that don't compromise on performance or quality. To learn more about the full range of high-tech Doro phones, visit doro.ie. Doro phones, make friends with innovation. If you're enjoying this podcast, why not subscribe to Senior Times, the magazine and website for people who don't act their age. Or maybe you have a loved one or a friend who you know would love to read more. You can buy a subscription and have the magazine delivered direct to their door. To subscribe to Senior Times, visit the website at seniortimes.ie and like us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash senior times. Ghosts, of course, don't come with use-by or even expiry dates. As if to prove this, they can turn up anywhere at any time, long after the original event. Dublin's Shelburne Hotel has a recurring ghost. Hauntings have not been unknown over the years at the stately hotel at St Stephen's Green. But about three years ago, a guests, guests started to report strange noises and happenings in one room in particular. Taps were turned on and off, shadows appeared, and air temperature and movement changed. After a member of staff, white-faced, confirmed that this was happening, a psychic was called in. She encountered a young girl, Mary Masters, who may have lived in one of the splendid townhouses which were later converted into the hotel. The mischievous Mary was looking for her elder sister, and research suggests that she might, in reality, have died of cholera at some stage. In the nearby mansion house, home to Dublin's Lord Mayors, and dating back to 1703, one recent Lord Mayor said that his four-year-old daughter saw a strange figure in the middle of the night watching television. His wife vowed never again to sleep in one room after spending just one hour there, and the family dog refused to walk past one door. Another recent Lord Mayor, Catherine Byrne, told how both of her young daughters separately heard a baby crying during the night. However, in view in terms of haunting ratings, few ghosts really make the short list over the centuries. Even fewer make folklore status with a mention in ballads. So, Billy in the Bowl from Dublin's Stony Butter is a one-off in many senses. Billy was born in the mid-1700s, disabled. He had no legs, a truly terrible situation in those days, with no medical help, hope of work, social support, or indeed any chance of a prosthesis. Billy, however, had one advantage. He was very handsome, with coal black hair, and classical features. He moved about in an iron bowl specially made for him, powered by wooden plugs which he directed from long straps. He could be heard yards away and was well known in the area with many friends. 
The effort involved in movement built up his arms and torso muscles. Added to his good looks, Billy soon learned how to play on those looks. He found that women of all backgrounds and social standing were supportive and sympathetic to his plight and his begging for money. From shop girls and servants to society ladies, all helped. Arms, food and drink from servants in Dublin's great houses, many of which were in the city's north side, were available to him. Plus what were then coyly termed sexual favours. In all, Billy created, in terms of his circumstances, an acceptable life. However, he did not realise that at the time, and his increasing reliance on his two weaknesses, booze and gambling, would lead to his downfall. Greed took over, and he decided to up his game using threats. His pleas for help from a cunningly disguised spot in the undergrowth, or a very secluded spot, were followed by surprise attack. Who could possibly suspect a man without legs, propelling himself by pegs and begging for a living? But the fact that Billy had powerful upper body strength meant that a firm grasp could lead to strangulation whether initially intended or not. Billy's attacks continued at a time in 1786 when the new Dublin Metropolitan Police Force was created and was keen to prove its worth. So when his attacks on servants for their wages continued, despite police interest, his luck ran out. He attempted to strangle a girl at 11 Grange Gorman Lane, but an accompanying and previously unseen friend pulled out a hat pin and stabbed Billy in the eye. The game was up, but it proved too difficult to convict him. When his case went to trial, the newly formed police service lacked the skills to prove that Billy had murdered his previous victims. However, he was convicted of robbery with violence and confined to Green Street Jail to break stones for the rest of his life. Whilst Belfast developed its international reputation for industry in the 19th century, when it comes to ghostly phenomenon, it has a long history. As one tourism chief puts it in Belfast, with our range of banshees, poltergeists and ghosts, there's no need to conjure up stories. We have plenty of the real thing. And the real thing ranges through comedy to tragedy. Theatres appear to attract the otherworldly. And the city's Grand Opera House has been included in a list of the most haunted concert venues in the world. It just goes to show that you can't keep a good actor down, let alone six feet under. A ghostly presence in black likes to take to the stage. Sometimes actors encounter ghostly presences in dressing rooms and wings, and some like to join them on stage. It has also been known 
from members of the orchestra to look out into the auditorium during rehearsals and spot ghostly figures there. Belfast ghosts have endured their share of heartbreak as well. In the well-known Smithfield market, in the 19th century, Biddy Farrell was in love with fellow stoneholder Luke White. However, he moved to Dublin to further his business interests. Biddy was heartbroken. Upon his death, he left her a sum of money in his will, which she promptly spent drinking to forget, and died still mourning her lost love. Biddy can be seen to this day in the areas around the city's Castle Court shopping centre and Gresham Street. The Crumlin Road Jail is now a top-rated museum and has a veritable who's who in its list of inmates. Eamon de Valera, Ian Paisley, Martin McGuinness, Bobby Sands, they were just a few of its prisoners. They may have said their farewells, though. Unlike the regular ghostly presences, one is of an American who was hanged but returns to protest his innocence. Another is a teenage boy, terrified by his sentence of hanging. His weeping each night even affected fellow convicts. And the youth hanged himself before his execution. Doors slam, voices still call for help, and ghostly wardens do their rounds. HMS Caroline, the Royal Navy ship, which served in the famous First World War Battle of Jutland, is now berthed in the city's Titanic quarter. The superb restoration includes an audiovisual of the Battle of Jutland experience. Anyone who watches this realises that the battle must have left absolutely lasting effects on those who were involved. There is already an Irish connection with Caroline. 15-year-old John Taylor, who was born in Dublin, joined the Navy in 1914. He stayed with Caroline until August 1918, and during that time rose to leading seaman. Others, however, were not so fortunate. 350 Irishmen served at Jutland and, and died there during the battle. Now the ship has a ghost, Stoker, a man who worked in the ship's engine room. He is spotted in overalls, silently roaming the ship. For sheer horror, however, the Friars Bush graveyard comes near the top of the various lists of Belfast hauntings. In the leafy suburbs of Stranmilis, the 5th century site, with the oldest Christian burial site in Belfast, is near the top of various listings for haunted Belfast, haunted Belfast sites. A discreet entrance leads to an old arched gatehouse, the, the House of the Dead overlooking two acres of severely overcrowded death. The name comes from the Friar's Bush, one legend goes, which was used as a landmark for a station for the saying of Mass, which of course was strictly forbidden after the penal laws in the 18th.
There are several legends about this. One has it that the friar was caught giving mass and was promptly hanged from the tree under which he was preaching. This has given the site its name. A nearby mound was once a plague pit, severely overcrowded during the outbreaks of cholera and dysentery in the 1830s and 1840s. Bodies were originally burnt to prevent the spread of infection. However, various famine victims were also buried there in the overcrowded spot. By the 1850s, the area had been designated a hotbed of potential disease and the plot was closed and marked with a headstone along with the graveyard. Body snatchers were also at work here. On one occasion in 1823, a grave containing a middle-aged woman and a child was robbed. The bodies were later found in a sawdust-filled cask on the city's docks, ready for export. Ironically, this graveyard also served the wealthy residents of the Malone area. Entrepreneurs, publishers, captains of industry, they all lived here. Yet, there was another aspect to Friar's Bush. Terrified maids, servants and mistresses in the area threw their illegitimate babies, alive and dead, over the wall in hope of burial. Ghosts have been seen here, spectres at dawn and dusk. However, most reports come in connection with an old tunnel, which provided an underground link, link with two buildings, which were part of Queen's University. In the 1990s, a site worker complained of unseen hands reaching out to touch him, and other people also experienced this, as well as cold spots. It all goes to show but when it comes to good ghost sites, Belfast does indeed have plenty, and we haven't even started on the halted industrial mills. But there's plenty of time. Ghosts will wait. In the meantime, why not join us for the next podcast dealing with castles? We will look at those classic haunting sites, and Ireland has literally dozens of them. You can even stay in several and experience haunting in some style. However, you may at this stage be wondering, just how do you know that you've actually seen a ghost and not just a figment of an overactive imagination? We'll take a look at the various signs that could mark out the real deal in ghost spotting. So until then, Safe and happy hauntings.